The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Okay, we're continuing in our study of the life of Christ this morning. We're still in part 11, part 11 of a 13-part series, Prophecies in Preparation for the Death of Christ. And right now we're in Thursday night, basically. We're in the discourses in the upper room leading up to the journey over to the Garden of Gethsemane. So John 13 through 17 records these discourses. 13 is paralleled in the other gospel accounts, the events that take place in that chapter. So everything from 14 through 17 is only in John's gospel. Now, let me ask you this, and we've talked about this in previous weeks. What would you say the main purpose of what Jesus is doing at this point in his ministry is? If you were to try to just kind of summarize the thrust of the upper room discourses. Preparing his disciples for God. Exactly. Really preparing his disciples for what things are going to be like between his two comings. The fact that he is going back to the Father. Uh, even the fact that he's going to end up being away from them for a short time initially because of the crucifixion, but he's going to come back, and then there's going to be an extended period of time that he's away. He's going to send the Spirit during that time, but he's going to, things are going to be different, right? They've followed him very closely over the last three years. They've seen all that he is able and capable of doing, uh, and now he's talking about going away. And they were at a point where, Let's just say they're, fra- they're a little bit fragile in their faith at this point, right? Because on the one hand, Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him, and that had to shake them a little bit. On the other hand, Peter, the strongest of the 12, is told by Christ that he's going to end up denying him three times. So you can really try to put yourself in their shoes. Uh, they're thinking initially at least that he's going to be the one to take the throne of Israel and to lead them out of Roman subjugation and and really change the, the status of the nation of Israel that has been in exile for so long and, and under foreign powers. But now that's not happening. And he's talking about dying and going away. And so there's a lot of questions that are raised in their mind. But these discourses really do serve to assure the disciples. Uh, He's not leaving them alone. He's going to come back for them one day after he goes to prepare a place for them. He's also going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell them so that really through the Spirit, both the Father and Christ uh, are still with them, even during the time where he's physically away. So last week we, we looked at John 14. We saw the questions from the disciples about where he was going. He said, uh, you know, you not only should know the way, know where I'm going, but you should know the way. In fact, you do know the way. And the way was what? It, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's right. And, and so the, the means by which they go back to the Father and we go back to the Father ultimately is through Christ. So he talks to them about that. Again, he talks to them about the coming of the Spirit. Uh, He talks to them about prayer and about how they will demonstrate love for him during this period between his two comings. What is that? How do they demonstrate that love? Obey my commandments. Exactly, by keeping the commandments, by keeping what Jesus had taught. We also see in chapter 14 this uh, 
close relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and then there's the mention of the Spirit. So there's a very Trinitarian chapter. John's Gospel, of course, is the most Trinitarian of all the Gospels. He's the one that focuses most on the deity of Christ. Uh, his Gospel is written much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, again, his is the one that focuses on those things. So what we're going to look at today is whoops, John 15 into the first four verses of John 16. I think it's probably a familiar passage and chapter to many of you with the vine and the branches uh, and then getting into 16 with the opposition that both the 12 and we face because of the change that's come about through our change in relationship with God and through Christ. So he's going to talk about that in the first four verses of, of, set, of 16, and even in part of 15 as well. So let's do like we did last time. We'll lay out just a real basic outline of this section, uh, abiding in Jesus as the true vine in 15, 1 to 8. That's the metaphor of the vine, and then the rest of the chapter is largely a commentary on the metaphor. Abiding in love in 9 through 12, Jesus' love and the relationship that he has with his own, that is his followers, in 13 through 17, and then opposition from the world, 15, 18 through 16, 4. Just some uh, broad things before we start reading the text itself. Um, there's some key themes that run not only through 15, but also through a number of these chapters. We'll see some things that we talked about in 14 surface again in 15, and we'll see that same thing as we keep going through 16 and 17. But the, the concept of abiding, we'll talk about what that means, faithfulness and fruitfulness uh, during this time between Christ's two comings, love and how it's demonstrated, prayer, and again, opposition from the world. We haven't seen so much of that up to this point, but we'll see it today. All right, let's talk a little bit about... Well, let's go ahead and read the vine and the branches metaphor, and then we'll see a little bit of the background from where that metaphor comes. Let's start in verses 1 through 8, John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. That's clear enough, right? Uh, God is the father, Christ is the son. Christ is saying he's the vine, and the father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So when he talks about being the true vine, uh, what kind of vine is he speaking of in the context? Uh, and what produces wine? Right, exactly. So there's a lot of Old Testament background for somebody else being the vine or being the vineyard. And who is that? 
Israel, good. So I want to just read some of these for you. If you want to, you can jot down the references. Uh, but Old Testament's full of them. Psalm 80, verses 7 through 9. O God of hosts, restore us. And again, the psalmist here is praying for the restoration of Israel. And cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved or delivered. Thou didst remove a vine from Egypt. Thou didst drive out the nations and displanted. Of course, that's referring back to the Exodus, the fact that God brought them out of Egypt and planted them in the land of Canaan. Thou didst clear the ground before, and they took deep root and filled the land. So in that context, there's not really a whole lot negative said about the vine or the vineyard, but that's more the exception than the rule. Let's look at one in Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Let me sing now for my beloved, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. A well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed the stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and, and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And then skipping down just a few verses uh, to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Makes a very explicit identification there. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine. And then the last one that we'll look at at least, Hosea 10 verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Now those weren't good altars or sacred pillars. It's just talking about the more prosperous Israel was, the further they turned away from God. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. So I think what comes through in all these, except for the first one we read from the Psalms, is Israel's unfaithfulness as a vine and the fact that the vine dresser is disappointed. Uh, he did everything he should on his side and expected fruit as a result, and yet they weren't producing fruit. Here, Jesus, by contrast, is saying, that he is the true vine. And despite Israel's past unfaithfulness, he has been faithful in his ministry to the Father. And now there's going to be these branches abiding in him that are different from the nation of Israel. Now, some of them are going to be parts of the nation of Israel. Keep in mind at Pentecost that everyone who believed initially, well, I would say the vast majority, there were Gentiles at Pentecost as well. But the church started out with 3,000 Jews, in effect. And over time, that's going to change. Uh, in fact, the, the balance of the Jews, the biggest part of them, are going to oppose the church. You see that in the book of Acts. And the Gentiles are going to be the ones that really flourish in the church. But what he's talking about here is either one, Jew or Gentile. He's speaking to 12 Jewish men, as he says what he says. Um, but it's applicable for... Uh, and there's, there is a particular application or direction of his message to the 12 because they are unique 
like David was making the point this morning, there's certain things that are historically unique. They're going to be the foundation of the church. They're going to be, they're the ones that have already spent this time with him. They're the ones that need comfort in this particular situation. But at the same time, the principles of John 15 of our need as believers to abide in Christ in order to be fruitful, that's uh, applicable far beyond just those 12. So let's look at some things, a little more detail here in these verses. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. That's basic horticulture or viticulture in the case of vines. You cut away the dead wood so, and you prune the good branches so that they can bear more fruit. But the question in this case becomes... What are these branches that don't bear fruit? It says that they're in the vine. Um, what do you think? Sucker branches. Roses have those two sucker branches. Okay. They have branches that come out. They, they never have any roses on them like that. They take away from the actual rose, rose branch itself. Uh, okay, so that's uh, a good way to describe the actual uh, horticulture of what's happening with branches and a vine. How does that carry over in the application? Uh, who are the sucker branches in the... In the, the non-believers and those who infiltrate the church and try to, to steer people away from the church. Okay, so I think it would certainly include the false teachers that David's been teaching us about in the book of Jude. I think it would also include others, though, that claim some association with Christ, uh, would even say that they are a believer in Christ, but they're not genuine branches. And how do we know that they're not genuine disciples? They don't bear fruit. That's the bottom line. Exactly. By their fruit, they will, you will know them. Uh, and in this case, this is one of the things that Jesus is teaching in this metaphor. Uh, a genuine believer is going to bear fruit. It's going to be to varying degrees, uh, and God's going to individually deal with genuine believers and do what he needs to do to prune them and to make them bear more fruit. But somebody that's not bearing fruit is not a believer. Right? That's the bottom line. Verse 3, he says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, not too long ago, we heard Jesus say something else about you all are clean, but not all of you. What was the situation there? Okay, he's washing their feet. Peter objected initially, and he says, you know, if you've bathed, you're already clean, and you only need to wash your feet. Uh, and he says, you are clean, but not all of you. Who is he talking about in that context? Okay, Judas. Judas is a prime example of a sucker branch that... <clears throat> for all intents and purposes, looked like he was a follower of Christ. He was one of the twelve. Christ chose him just like he chose everybody else. But in the end, he wasn't a genuine believer. And I think, you know, the fact that he's already left at this point, even though he was there when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, uh, he's providing them with some explanation that you can have people that make a profession of faith in Christ and that aren't genuine believers. That would be very important for them to know going forward. It's important for us to know. Now, Again, we have to be careful. We can't, we're not the ultimate uh, judge of bearing fruit, right? And uh, we don't, on the one hand, we are fruit inspectors. I've used people, I've heard people use that term very pejoratively because we are encouraged uh, to know by their fruits who they are. 
But at the same time, the Lord's the one that judges ultimately the fruitfulness of any believer. And he's the one also that provides the necessary discipline and pruning to make that bear that person bear more fruit. But also, I mean, sucker branches can't be can be converted to good branches, horticulturally speaking. But um, it would be good for just like it is good for a brother to reprove another brother if he's doing something he's going down the wrong path. For the person who's truly interested, but just maybe not for for, for a more believing one person to reprove another person. That doesn't mean we're judging them, it just means we're trying to guide them along the right way because they may be misled. I mean, there are a lot of people in, in the Mormon church who really, you ask them, they are, we're Christians, this and that. Yeah. But we know that they really aren't. That's right. And and you, you just need wisdom into how to confront them with that. Right. And, you know, in the case of a Mormon, and Anton, Anton could say this better than I can, but, they rely on other sources of divine revelation, things that contradict what's said in Scripture. To me, the, in that situation, you point out to them what Scripture says, and you do gently confront them. Right. We're not judging them. No, that's right. We are confronting You're, without judging. Exactly, yeah. But as far as, you know, between genuine believers, you just have to be really careful and say, well, I don't see any fruit in that person's life. They profess to be a believer. And that may be true, uh, and, you know, you can certainly confront them the same way that Paul did and said, you know, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I think sometimes it's easier than others to know that a person's not a believer, even if he's making a profession, depending on how he's living. But you just want to be careful, too, to recognize that what, what we see is very limited compared to what God sees. He, he can see fruitfulness in places, perhaps, that we don't see as human beings. I don't think we, want, we don't want to be legalistic either and drive them away. No. So there's a real fine line of how to reprove them. And I think that comes in the relationship that you have with that person. It does. You know how to approach them. That's right. That's a good point. Okay. They were already clean. Why? Now, he's only speaking to the leaven at this point. Why were they clean? Because of what? Okay, so Judas was gone. That's why he's not making an exception here. But what was it that made these folks clean? It was the Word of God. It was the message of Christ. It was, even though the Spirit has not yet come upon them like He will at Pentecost, they, they believe, right? They believe based on what they've seen Jesus do, what He's taught them. So that's what makes them clean. You know, in the earlier context, it was about water and foot washing here is the idea of the of a vine being clean because it's been properly pruned and in their case they believe uh, and they believe because of the word that christ had spoken to them uh, they're in right relationship with him abide in me and i in you uh, that's clear enough right just you know a branch can't if you cut it off it's not going to bear fruit it has to abide in the vine that's where it gets its nourishment that's where it it's how it's able to be fruitful, and the same principle carries over to us. Uh, we are fruitful in, in as far as we're abiding in Christ. So let me ask you this. How would you define what abiding in Christ is? Keeping the commandments, obeying what he says. How else? Seeking to know more about him. Okay, seeking to grow and know him better. Can you, can you think of a, a way to define it that is not abiding in Christ? Maybe just to clarify. 
We've already talked about the one that didn't, right? Remaining. Remaining. Remaining in Christ. Continuing to believe. Continuing to hold on to the promises. Continuing to follow. I mean, Judas not only, you know, the main thing that he did was find an opportune time to lead the authorities to Jesus so that they could arrest him and bring him up on charges apart from the crowds. I'll be really candid with you. To me, at first blush, it seems that Peter's sin was greater than Judas's. I mean, he denied even knowing him three different times. But Judas, uh, and we don't, we've talked about the fact that we don't know all of his motives. Uh, certainly he was doing it for money and he was greedy. But Judas didn't continue to follow. He didn't repent, and Peter did. So that was a big difference. Um, but those are all good definitions of what abiding is. It's, it's not that complicated, really. It's, it's continuing in the faith. It's growing in your knowledge and understanding of who Christ is and what he requires and obeying what you learn. So he repeats, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Who abides in me and I in him? He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. <clears throat> what is that speaking to? <coughs> Judgment. Now, there are people that take this verse very differently and say that he's still talking about believers here and that this is just a physical kind of judgment, not eternal uh, fire and eternal judgment. I don't think so. I think, again, Judas is a significant figure even within this context, and even though that he's not present here, uh, Judas was certainly the son of perdition. He's going to be eternally judged. And all those who don't truly know Christ, even though they say they can know him, or they say they do know him, uh, if they don't truly know him, if they're not abiding in Christ the way that Christ himself teaches, then they're going to be cut off. They're going to be judged, and they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. Do those who hold that, for instance, like those can be believers that are not abiding and are not producing any fruit, like to me it's the vine dresser that's pruning them and making them more fruitful. So do they not recognize the role of the... I mean, I know that it's a mutual thing. You know, we walk in obedience and the Lord transforms us. But, like, I hold to the belief that the Lord will transform us. Yes. You know, like, yep. He loves us too much to just leave us in our flagrant sin. Right. If we're His children. So what do those people think about the role of the dresser? Like, He just didn't do a good job with that branch? Or what? So what they tend to do, and this is... Free grace theology, basically, is that, yes, there are two kinds of believers, and they make this distinction in a lot of different places. There's a kind that is following Christ faithfully and producing fruit, and they would agree that the vine dresser still prunes those and makes them more fruitful. But there's another kind that aren't fruitful, and they don't really submit to the lordship of Christ, and yet they still believe. And they're very reluctant for some, you know, we would say even here in the Bible Belt that there's people that made a profession of faith as a child, and it meant nothing to them. Ultimately, they didn't continue to follow. They would say, well, if they've ever professed faith in Christ, then they're a believer. And then they, they start at that point, and they say, if that's the case, then this can't be eternal fire for them. This is just some kind of physical death or punishment uh, that's separate from eternal destiny. 
address her with those kinds of people? What does he do with them? They would say that God is a God of love and mercy and compassion, and therefore they they don't go to the lake of fire. And they so what what he does in that case is just punish them physically, okay. and they lose their life, their physical life. They would say they lose reward as well. I just don't think. I don't think that fits the context here, again, because of Judas and because of his not being a true branch. I think Christ is preparing us for people that make a profession of faith, like the false teachers, but even others beside that, that aren't true branches. And to me, the, the whole imagery of cutting off that dead wood so that others can flourish makes better sense with that explanation than the other. That's actually a kindness of God. To cut them off? Yeah. To, to, if you're thinking horticulturally, you know, in order for the plant to really grow, you've got to tend. Get rid of the dead wood. That's right. And even though in the tending, that may be painful, you know, something's being lopped off. And you look at it for a while and you go, whoa, that looks awful. But then it comes back and it flourishes. And you can see the good that came through the hard times. Okay, so that's particularly true for believers, right? I think right, that, right. that that's what the pruning process is. But I think you've got to separate that from cutting off dead wood that, that is not bearing any fruit and that being allowed to dry and eventually be cast into fire. So I, I want to talk about what you're talking about as far as discipline. That's a little different, I think, than what Denise was asking about as far as you know, what is the vine dresser's role in addressing or how do the people that believe this see the vine dresser as addressing those who aren't truly believers? It can also be said, if somebody were to ask me that, would say, you know, is the vine dresser, you know, not not a good vine dresser, or is he not fair, or whatever, whatever, you could, another answer could be, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that he, they were just, we don't know who's chosen, but they may just not have been chosen by by God from the beginning, from before the creation of the world. Well, they that's... Just, and he would know who, the, who he has chosen that, that's for sure that that's the case but the, I think you, you have to keep in mind that we don't know who's chosen we don't know and there are people that aren't chosen that still make a profession of faith in Christ right the false teachers for example uh, and others and you know ultimately you will be able to distinguish between those two through some kind of fruit bearing but I think he's just letting us know here let's let's say that we didn't know that and that we just said everybody who um, makes profession of faith in Christ has to be a believer well you've got uh, you got real problems at that point because Christ has already made clear that if we love him we'll keep his commandments and these folks aren't going to necessarily do that they're not going to necessarily be interested even in doing that I think he's just spelling out criteria here between what a genuine branch and a believer is and what is not. Let me get back to Pat's point about uh, the pruning process. That, going back, that cutting off, is that done, is that at death? Is that what, or is the Lord cutting someone off if they're not a believer? What is that actually referring to? I think it's talking about judgment. Now, whether or not you could say it's actually physical death at that point or not, but he's he's just making the point that if you're not truly abiding in Christ and you're a branch and you're not bearing fruit, then ultimately you're going to be judged and cast into the lake of fire. So even though it may not be at death, it's it, sort of a done deal. It is a done deal. Okay. 
is speaking, I think, more of judgment than. No, we don't, but we don't know. We don't know. Uh, I always pray for people and think, well, until their last breath, there is hope. That's right. There is hope that the Lord has chosen them, and it may come at a deathbed conversion. Yes, I believe. In life. Yes, absolutely. We don't we don't make a final decision about. But this is scary stuff, really. It is. And Norma. Uh, with regard to the branch that is about to be cut off, um, isn't there the fruit of that? a testimony that a person have, has, I mean, it's make a profession one time, but a testimony is what I was and what he did and what I have become as a result of that. That's right. So wouldn't that be missing in the branch that you might cut off? Yes. I mean, there are people that would point back and say, of course I'm a Christian. I made a profession of faith when I was a five-year-old kid. I got baptized and I'm saved, and yet their life doesn't reflect. It is an ongoing testimony of their life that's the true evidence of whether or not they're a genuine believer. You can't just point to a decision that was made that, that didn't make a lot of difference in your life over time. The gentleman that David and I ministered to um, in prison, I tell them that you know when God wants to, to draw us closer to him, what he does, he turns up the heat the analogy I was using is, the, you know, when the, the draw, the, the gold and the silver, the draws that keeps, you know, every time you turn the heat up a little bit more, more draws floats to the top. And that's right. Finally, it's nothing but pure, pure gold that's right. left. And I said, you have to keep turning up the heat each in measurement to, to keep achieving that. I see the pruning of the branches the same way. I, I see that as um, pruning the branches and turning up the heat which is really trials and things in our lives. The trials that we go through, whether they're physical or, or mental or financial, or whatever trials we go through, that's God either turning up the heat or pruning us exactly. to draw us closer to Him so that we can bear more fruit. That's right. Become more pure. That's right. So in the context you're talking about, it is uh, turning up of the heat to get the dross to come to the top, skimming it off, and it is through trials. I want to read another passage that speaks about the discipline of God, and he does it again for our good. He does it the same way a father does disciplining his own children, right? I mean, you don't just not discipline and think that that's somehow loving. And that's what Hebrews talks about. Hebrews 12, verse 5. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children. And again, I would argue that that's illegitimate children in the same way of illegitimate branches. You're not genuinely a son of God, a child of God. Your illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but his discipline, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. I think we can all agree with that. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I would say that's another mark of a genuine believer is the way that they respond to trials and difficulties. They recognize that God is using it, even though it is hard. 
and not joyful. They recognize that that's the way that God works. I mean, Scripture is very clear that He does it that way to improve the quality of our faith and to, to teach us more dependence upon Him. Okay, good, good discussion. Uh, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, it shall be done for you. Uh, that was, I think, similar to what we said in, from John 14 last week. Again, that's not a... It's not an incantation where you can just say whatever you want and get it. It's not name it, claim it. But it is the idea of if you're embodying in Christ and you're really pursuing God and immersed in thinking the way that God thinks, you're asking things according to his will, and that's the things that God is going to grant. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's an interesting way to say it. You prove to be disciples by the fruit that you bear. And again, you know, you think about the parable in which uh, the sower sows his seed and three of the soils don't bear fruit. The one does, but even then it's to varying degrees. And that's all according to the plan of God. Uh, doesn't mean that we'll all bear the same amount of fruit and doesn't mean we'll all have the same gifts, but there will be fruit. And God is the one that ensures that. Again, he says, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So uh, now we're talking about abiding in love, that second section in our outline. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You know, Christ already talked last week about peace. And, us, and his giving us his peace. Well, now he's talking about our having his joy. And that comes, again, from abiding in him, from doing what he commands. If you're not doing those two things, you're not going to have Christ's joy. Now he talks about the love that he has for his own and his relationship to his own, beginning in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Of course, Christ is about to do that in just 24 hours at this point. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, maybe that creates a little tension in your mind. Don't we know that Peter called himself a slave and Jude as well? What's, what's he saying here? What's the difference between a friend and a slave? And are we not still slaves? Yeah, we, we are. We can be both, and I think that's the answer. I mean, there's other passages that talk about the fact that we're either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness, and we present ourselves, our members, to one or the other. Now, the difference here, I think, though, is there is a difference between somebody who has a slave, and he can be a very good master, and, and there be a very good relationship. Uh, we don't think about that in slavery in our own country, and, and rightfully so. There was a lot of that that wasn't good. But back during Bible times, slavery was not a bad thing, and you could have guys that were slaves that actually went moved higher up in society than those that were freedmen. It all depended on the master, right? And in this case, we, we, we still regard ourselves as slaves of Christ, but Christ is saying here that we're more than slaves. And particularly he's telling the 12, look, 
I'm not, I'm not just treated like a slave and said, do this without any explanation. I've told you about things. I've explained things to you. I've demonstrated my love to you. You're more than just slaves to me. You're friends as well. And he says, I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. I think that's the difference. He's really sought to explain the father to them, and he's treated them better than slaves. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So that's a repetition of what we heard earlier. It's an important reminder to the 12 and to us. None of us gets there by our own choice. None of us is even inclined toward choosing God. God chooses us. Uh, he chooses us before the foundation of the world for salvation. He certainly had chosen the 12. They had not chosen him so God is the one that receives the glory because he's the one that chooses us it doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility we do it doesn't mean that those who aren't chosen by God are not responsible because they are and that's something that's very hard for us to reconcile but God's the one that chooses God's the one that saves God's the one that keeps uh, despite our responsibilities to also at the same time pursue faithfulness and pursue just persevere in believing again he repeats this I command you that you love one another uh, it's a very important command it's the one that Jesus talked about as the most important command one of two right the first was love God with all your heart soul mind and strength the second love your neighbors yourself uh, subset of the second I would argue is that we have a special particular responsibility to love each other as believers in Christ we're to love all men and we're to pursue peace with all men but we have a special bond with those that know Christ okay we're just going to look at the first four verses oh, well we still got some more than 15 sorry now he starts talking about the opposition that we will face as believers first with regard to the 12, they're going to be especially uh, hated. Uh, and he goes on to explain why. But again, these are all principles that are applicable for us as believers in the world today. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Clear enough. I mean, he's... On the one hand, he's been able to draw great multitudes over the course of his ministry and minister to those people. And there were a lot of people that wanted him to be king. At the same time, from the beginning, there were people that didn't appreciate Christ and ultimately are going to kill him. Uh, so hatred doesn't get much stronger than that. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What is the world that he's talking about here? System. The world system. Uh, the fact that we live in a world that uh, fell and came under the curse. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the one that controls the world system. And most of the world is part of that world system in that they oppose Christ. And he's just saying, here, look, that world hated me. It hated me when I came in, even though I was from God, I was bringing the light and truth of God. He came to his own, his own received them not. Uh, in the same way, when we're chosen by God to, be, to come out of the world system, and that's what happens at conversion, we 
basically we change sides, right? We're all born into the world system. We're all born as enemies of God. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. But we change sides and we go over to the side of Christ and to his followers and to the church, and that sets us up for being hated by the world. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. That's a very condemning statement. I mean, certainly the people that are going to end up persecuting the church, and we see the full record of that as we walk through the book of Acts, are mostly the Jews. I mean, there's other sources of persecution to be sure there's pagan uh, idolatrous people that were so much part of the Roman society and when the Christians wouldn't participate would not participate in their feasts and guilds and other things that brought persecution there was persecution by the civil government that uh, when the Christians refused to uh, pay their proper obedience to those civil authorities but Paul has much trouble with his own countrymen, uh, the Jews, as anybody, and they chased him down and sought to kill him. Those Jews, uh, you know, they had the revelation of God from all the Old Testament scriptures, and yet they didn't truly know God. They didn't know him. The evidence that they didn't know him was they did not receive his son. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He's, he's saying that they wouldn't have sin in an absolute sense. I mean, that doesn't seem to square up with what we know. In what sense would they have no sin? Exactly. I mean, we've seen this uh, in other places in the gospel. The more light they have, the more uh, you're responsible for. And their sin in this case is... They actually saw Christ. They saw his ministry. They heard his teaching. And their accountability is higher as a result. So that's what he's saying. If, if he had not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't have had the same accountability that they did now. doesn't mean that they didn't have any sin. Just like even before the law was given, you know, even when Cain killed Abel, he, he was guilty of sin. But what the law served to do was more fully clarify what sin was. And that's what Christ did, too, with his ministry. And it, with that increased knowledge, there's an increased accountability. He who hates me hates my father also. That matches up with what Christ has already said with, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. By the same token, if you reject me, if you hate me, you hate the father who sent me. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. Again, like what we talk, talked about just now. But now they've both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they've done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now, uh, in the harmony, and maybe in your Bible, there's a, a reference, cross-reference, Psalm 35, 19, Psalm 69, 4. Both of those are written by David as the psalmist, and both of them have reference to the similar kind of treatment that he received, um, being hated by people that, that he thought were his friends. Let me see if I have that reference here. 
I don't think I, I put that in my notes. But you can look at those two references. Both of them have, it's not an exact quotation, both of them have an allusion to uh, his being hate, being hated without a cause. Uh, Psalm 69, 4 is a little bit tighter to that thought than 35, 19 is. So again, he turns now to talking about the helper, and he's going to develop this idea more fully next week in uh, chapter 16. When the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also because you've been with me from the beginning. Again, there's a particular role that the 11 had at this point. It'll eventually be 12 again when they pick Matthias. They had a responsibility because they had been with Christ from the beginning and they could testify firsthand to all that he said and did. They could testify to his resurrection. The spirit of truth does that uh, also. How? How does the spirit of truth testify to Christ today? Through the scriptures and the, more particularly through... Okay, illumination for believers. What about... Evangelism, well, I would argue that when the gospel is preached to an unbeliever, the way that he becomes a believer is that the Spirit testifies to him, hey, this is the truth. And he op it's a different kind of illumination, but he opens his heart to be able to receive that truth. Because initially, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. That was the way we all were. But the Spirit works and testifies to enable a person to believe today when they hear the gospel. It's those two things together. I don't think you can just be walking along and you hear the Spirit talk and all of a sudden you're a Christian. You hear it by means that God has ordained that is through the gospel and the Spirit working in your heart to convict you of sin and draw you to Christ. These things I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. Now, he's going to talk about the fact that they're, they're at risk of dying, right, for the sake of the gospel. But their biggest enemy is not being put to death. What is their biggest enemy? If they die, they're with Christ. So, uh, who says that? Milton. Milton, good, good. I'm sorry, I couldn't tell. That's exactly what it is. Their biggest enemy is falling away or be becoming an apostate, being like Judas. And that's what they're, that's what Christ is really trying to teach them. Uh, is the need to stay faithful. You know, that faithfulness could cost them their physical lives, but that's not going to be a bad thing for them or for us. He goes on to say, verse 2, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Again, this is the Jews, and this is the kind of thing that we see worked out in the book of Acts. But an hour is coming for, for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. I would argue that that's what happens when they put Christ to death. And there would be uh, people today that would argue that by killing Christians, they think they're offering service at least to their God. Um, but that was true for the earliest apostles as well. And these things they would do because they've not known the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And again, that's driving a lot of what he's teaching now. 
while Christ was with them, he received the brunt of persecution, right? Certainly they were there, they were onlookers. But now that persecution is going to shift to them, just as it shifts to us when we become a believer. They're still persecuting Christ when they're persecuting his followers. But as long as he was with them, uh, they really didn't face the same kind of opposition that, that he did. But now he's preparing them for the time when that changes. And, and that's what he'd said earlier. You know, If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as my followers. And certainly, uh, like David mentioned this morning, we're in a context where we're not nearly as persecuted as a lot of other places in the world as believers. But anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And it just comes in different forms and at different levels depending on where you are in the world. Okay. So next week, we'll still be in the discourses. We'll be talking about the coming and ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. We've already had a couple of references to that in both 14 and 15, but we'll get it uh, developed a little more fully in 16. Any other questions about anything that we covered today? All right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful that you have, you not only told the 11, but you tell us in advance that we will face difficulty as believers. And you tell us at the same time that we don't need to fear that. All that they can do to us in this life is take our physical lives. Uh, we know on the one hand that we have a responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to pursue you regardless of what opposition that we face. And we know at the same time that you promise to keep us that not a single one that you've chosen before the foundation of the world will be lost. So we take great comfort in that. Uh, we take great comfort in what your word teaches us, even also about discipline and, and pruning. Uh, we recognize that you do that much better than our earthly fathers have. They even did it for our good, but you do it for our good in a way that's much greater than they did or were even able to do. So we thank you for the way that you take us through all the circumstances that we walk through in this life and the way that you use those difficulties to conform us to the image of Christ. And we thank you that ultimately everyone that Christ has chosen and saved will be glorified. So help us uh, to be mindful of that as we walk through the various places that you have us through the week. Help us to honor you in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.